0: The word holy that Michael used there in the prayer is going to be a key word uh, in this particular section, the word holy. We're going to begin, I know that Brad did this a little bit, but uh, the altar of incense in Exodus 30, verses 1 through 10. Uh, we covered that before as we were talking about what belonged in the tabernacle. But let's uh, talk about the tabernacle in just a moment. First of all, we'll let this be the tabernacle proper. And here we have the division between the holy and the most holy place. And one piece of furniture was in the most holy place, and that was the ark or the chest of the covenant where the Ten Commandments were placed. And there God says, I will meet with you. Then you have the um, altar of incense and the table of showbread, And they were at definite points. And sometimes I, I reverse which one was which. But you know they were in the holy place and I know some of you are being wooed by this artwork up here, <laughs> uh, but just try to get the main idea. And then the altar of incense was located here, and we'll, we'll talk about that some in just a second. And then in the courtyard, you had the altar of burnt offering, and then you had the labor which we'll talk about also, Lord willing. But in Exodus 30, verses 1 through 10, we see instruction about this altar of incense. And the furniture which is in the holy place is made of this acacia wood and overlaid with gold. And so it is true for this altar of incense. uh, Verse uh, two tells its length and width and height. Uh, it is to be uh, in length a cubit in width a cubit. It shall be square. Its height shall be two cubits. Horns shall be on one piece of it. And it shall be overlaid with pure gold according to verse verse 4. In verse 5, it has poles in its side which were used for carrying the altar just like they carry the Ark of the Covenant from place to place so they carry the altar of incense as well and in verse 6 you shall put this altar in front of the veil that is near the Ark of Testimony in front of the mercy seat that is over the Ark of the Testimony where I will meet with you so it is before the curtain before the Ark Of the covenant. And one thing that's done on this altar in verses 7 and 8 is every morning Aaron burns incense on it. And at twilight he trims the lights and burns incense as well according to verse 8. So he burns incense in the morning and in the evening according to verses 7 and 8. But Notice in verse 9, you shall not offer any strange fire on this altar. Now that's exactly what Nadab and Abihu do. They offer strange fire uh, upon it. Strange fire and here it says strange incense. You shall not offer strange incense on the altar. You not offer burnt offerings or meal offerings or pour out drink offerings there. But you shall make an atonement on its horns once a year and it shall make atonement on it with the blood of the sin offering uh, of atonement once a year throughout all your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. Okay. Now, here is our... Again, this is the courtyard, the altar of burnt offering, and the labor. And here is the holy place with the table and the altar of incense and the lampstand and the Ark of the Covenant. Who goes into the most holy place? The, priest. the, the high priest. High priest. How often? Once a, year. Once a year. Only on the Day of Atonement. Now let me tell you a little difficulty with this. When you read Hebrews 9, and Hebrews 9 talks about the tabernacle. And when Hebrews 9 verses 1 through 10 talks about the tabernacle, what is a difficulty with that text? The altar of incense is inside. Okay, he puts the altar of incense inside the most holy place. Now, why is that? And it's impossible the author of Hebrews doesn't know where the altar of incense is. Um, but, But the point I think he may be, because Hebrews 9 and 10 deal extensively with the Day of Atonement the day of atonement. That tenth day of the seventh month where the high priest once a year enters the most holy place and only with blood. That's that's the whole emphasis. In Hebrews chapter 9. And because the altar of incense is also intimately associated with that day as the high priest smears the blood upon the horns of the altar as Exodus 30 verse 10 says. Because of this altar's connection with the day of atonement, I think that's why it's mentioned in that way. Now I I will say this, in being fair, that that is one thing that someone might point out as a problem or contradiction in the Bible. Some of them don't even cause me to turn my head. I mean, what are you talking about? There's nothing there. I can at least see the point that is made there and don't know if my answer is perfect. But I do think it's what makes sense, I think, because the altar of incense is so closely associated with this day of atonement, which is being described in context, that that is why it is associated with the most holy place instead of with the holy place. Do you have a question there on that? Anything? Okay. Then the text in chapter thirty, verses eleven through sixteen, deals with the, um, the the tax, the shekel tax. See, it's worded in the text. It says um, half a shekel in verse in verse thirteen, but. Uh, This is a tax paid to the tabernacle which involves the work on the tabernacle. Let's just look at what the text says. In verse 11, the Lord also spoke to Moses, saying... We want to pay attention to that wording a little bit later on. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying... Verse 12, when you take a census of the sons of Israel to number them... Then each one of them shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord when you number them that they may be, that there may be no plague among them when you number them. This is what everyone who is numbered shall give. Half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel that is 20 garrets. Half a shekel as a contribution to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered from 20 years old and over shall give the contribution to the Lord. The rich shall not pay more, the poor shall not pay less than the half shekel when you give the contribution to the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. You shall take the atonement money from the sons of Israel and shall give it to the service of the tent of meeting that it may be a memorial for the sons of Israel before the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. Now, you notice here that the words census and number or numbering are key words in this section. You find the words census uh, which is used in verse uh, 12, and then you find uh, the word number is used a couple of times here uh, in verse 12, and uh, it is used also in verse 13 and verse 14. So, this they number the people, uh, the text tells us. When they numbered them in verse 14, 20 years old and over, that each of them paid this half shekel tax to the tabernacle. Now, in this context, does this seem like a one time thing or does this seem like a continual thing? Okay. It may be subjective. I would have said one time. But a lot of taxes, this is just a real life application, a lot of taxes that start out as one time end up being perpetual. And uh, that is, where does this come into play elsewhere in the biblical text? Where does this come into play? Is that the uh, temple tax that uh, Peter was supposed to go get? Okay. Quite well, Jesus, G- Peter is just Peter was asked. You're on the right thing, David. I didn't mean to cut you off, but okay. you're on the right thing because Peter is. But Peter's asked, "Does the Lord pay the tax?" He, yeah. Well, he doesn't even think about it, he is, and Jesus says. Listen, when the kings of the earth take taxes, do they take them from their sons or or someone else, servants? And and well they don't take them from their sons. So Jesus is basically saying he is exempt from this tax. But go out and catch a fish with a hook, which again, important information, the only time fishing with a hook is mentioned in the New Testament. And he catches him with a hook, and he takes out two drop my tax to pay for, for Peter and for Jesus. But this, this is tied to uh, something that starts here in Exodus chapter 30 that they paid this money to uh, the tabernacle and it says when you do this there will be no plague among you. Can you think of a time in the Old Testament where a plague is connected with this. 2 Samuel 24. Second Samuel 20, is that what you were about to ask about? Okay. And, uh, and see, I was being preemptive and striking <laughs> there because in 2 Samuel chapter 24, David is, is, is apparently wrong in that case for David to take the census. But after he takes the census, the plague strikes out. The plague comes out. The plague kills 70,000 people. Uh, In Israel, 2 Samuel chapter 24, how we relate it exactly to this passage, I am not 100% sure. But it does seem to me that there is some kind of tie, some kind of connection between it. But I haven't crystallized the best way to express that. Yes, Jim. Well, I, I, my, um, I did not run across that in reading. I, I would imagine that most, and this is just, this is not based on information right here, but I would imagine there was some kind of tax toward the temple in most of those religions. But you remember some of those points, Jess. We make is that Israel is trying to keep its religion. Distinct, so this wouldn't be necessarily a point a point of distinction from a lot of those religions of the ancient Near East. Uh, But again, like I said, it's not based on uh, extensive memory of specific legislation. Right there, I I wanted to keep this up for just a little bit longer anyway. My, My picture of the tabernacle because I wanted to talk some about this labor in Exodus chapter 30, verses 17 through 21. It is the one that is mentioned right here. And it has not been mentioned previously. We will find later, there's a reference to this in 38, verse 8. It was made of bronze. Here the articles inside the holy place are of gold. The closer you get to the presence of God, the more precious the metal. Here these items were made of bronze. The text tells us in Exodus 38 verse 8 that it was made of the bronze mirrors of the women who were serving at the doorway of the tent of meeting. And we only find that reference is Exodus 38 8. We only find the reference to the women who served the tabernacle uh, in this uh, section, there in, in that verse, Exodus 38 verse 8. But what they did, they had this labor here, and it was set up for washing. It was between the tent of meeting and the altar, the altar of burnt offering, which was also of bronze. And In verse 19, Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and feet from it. And then in verse 21, it says Aaron and his descendants shall do this throughout their generations. Again, the priesthood is a hereditary office. This applies to Aaron and his sons, Aaron and his descendants. And they are told they must wash their hands and feet before entrance into the Lord's house. Remember the question is asked in Psalm 24. Who may ascend into the hill of his, the Lord? Who may go to his holy place? And the answer is he who has clean hands and a pure heart. And part of this activity that they engaged in is they washed their hands in the labor before entering the house of God. Is just to remind them of their need for purity when they enter God's presence. That they wash their hands as a reminder that I must approach God with clean hands and a pure heart. But but I'm saying it's a reminder. I say that, but, but was the washing itself essential in this case? Yes, it is, because you notice the penalty for disobedience is stark. In this case, in verse 20, the Bible says, When you enter the tent of meeting, they shall wash with water that they may not die. Or when they approach the altar to minister by offering up in smoke a fire sacrifice to the Lord. Verse 21, and they shall wash their hands and their feet that they may not die. I want you to pay attention to how often tonight, that is stated, death or being cut off, which I think we'll be able to state later, is death, how often that is stated as a penalty for violation of these principles of God. And I recognize that that seems a very severe penalty to us. But this is the God who loves these people, who created these people, And he has a purpose in saying that. And one, he is reminding them constantly of his holiness in these things that take place, and that this place must be approached with the greatest holiness. Any questions right there? Yes. Um. Going back to the previous section with the uh, ransom money, it sort of seems like a, an odd place for this to be brought up, but going back to the thought of is it a one-time tax or a yearly tax, uh, it sort of mentions that it's to make atonement for the people, and in the previous section, it was uh, they were to uh, purify the altar of incense uh, once a year for atonement could that maybe lean toward the idea of being a yearly tax? Well, it, it was definitely applied that way. And, and so, um, you know, could it have been in close association with the Day of Atonement? Honestly, I don't remember uh, if there was a due date or anything like that. There's none, there's none stated in the law. I don't know if there's one stated in Jewish practice as far as what they did with that. So, uh, he just mentioned in verse 10 at the end of the section at the altar of incense, he's just mentioned the uh, Day of Atonement. So, it may, it may be a tie. It's a good thought. Good thought, Michael. Um, in verses 22 through 34, I want to try to go over this um, rather quickly. Uh, this talks about we've seen tonight so far briefly this altar of incense, this tax for the tabernacle, uh, and this in connection with the census, and the labor of bronze that was in the courtyard where the priests must wash their hands and feet before entrance to the house of the Lord. And what we find here in chapter thirty. Verses 22 through 33 is the anointing oil, the anointing oil that was used to anoint the tabernacle, to anoint the people who served there. And in chapter 30, verses 34 through 38, the formula, if you want to call it that, for the incense. That was offered in the altar of incense, but this is this is largely a recipe. I mean, that's given here in this text. But uh, in verses 22 through 33, uh, the anointing oil. Now, the word anoint is going to be key here. The word anoint is going to be used in verse 26, in verse 30, in verse 31. And really this section from verses 26 to 30, everything he mentions in between is anointed. But remember too something we said the other day. If you haven't been with us previously, let me reiterate this. That really everything about this tabernacle cries out, holy. And notice how frequently you find this word here. In verse 25, you find the word holy a couple of times. You find the word holy a couple of times in verse 29. You find it in verse 31 and a couple of times in verse 32. You also find the word, at least in the New American Standard Bible, consecrate, which is a verb form of this particular word, holy, which is used both in 29 and 30. So everything, even about the oil that's used to anoint them screams holy. Everything about it. And the text tells us, and I want you to notice again, what's the penalty if you just decide to take this recipe and mix up a batch for yourself? What's the penalty stated in the text? Death. Death. You'll be cut off from among the people, verse 33 says. That same warning is going to be given about the incense in verse 38. You're going to be cut off from among the people. You're going to be cut off. Now, what is this anointing oil used for? Well, one, it's used... It is used to anoint the tabernacle itself. Not only were people anointed but inanimate objects were anointed. In verse 26, you anoint the tent of meeting, the ark of testimony, the table, its utensils, the lampstand and its utensils, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering and its utensils, the labor and its stands, and you shall consecrate them that they may be most holy. Whoever touches them will be holy. So verses 26 through 29, the tabernacle itself is anointed. But in verse Thirty, the text emphasizes that the priests, the personnel who served there, Aaron and his sons, they are to be anointed. They're to be anointed. Just like kings were later anointed, priests were anointed, uh, and we found a good bit of emphasis on that in the last few chapters, but Uh, you shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them that they may minister as priests to me and in verse 32 it is not to be poured on anyone's body nor shall you make any like it uh, in the same proportions it's holy it's holy to you so you don't use the anointing oil on just anyone and that is a serious crime And as we stated, to mix up your own badge is a serious crime. This is to serve a holy purpose, a distinct purpose. And the same with the incense in verse 34 through 38. Now again, the word holy is very prominent in this section. It is used in verse 35, it's used in 36, it's used in 37. The word holy is used, is repeated all those times. And the penalty for taking this incense and mixing it up, and by the way, that should not be a hard thing to avoid because we don't know with certainty how to identify all these things. But the penalty was again being cut off from one of the people. Now, a severe penalty again, a severe penalty for what looks like to us a small crime. But God's teaching a bigger purpose of His holiness, and if we all stand in all of His holiness to such a degree that they never even imitated this batch of anointing oil or incense nor never poured it on anyone's head, just joking around. All of this is to lead people to take God seriously. To take Him. To take His worship. To take everything about that with the utmost seriousness. If we did that, how much better all the world would be. For if we treat even these things with such seriousness, how much more are we going to treat people created in his image with seriousness? What kind of uh, questions do you have Is Anything on 30? Yes. Would, and maybe I missed it. Would this have been the same oil that would have been used to anoint the kings? Like I take it, yes, but it is not stated in context. It is not stated, but I take it that yes, that it was. And in the Old Testament, after Israel gets kings, when we think about anointing, we don't think about it as much in connection with the priesthood as we do in connection with the king. And when they look for Jesus, as we talked about the word anointing in the Old Testament is connected to the Hebrew word Messiah. Like the word anointing in the New Testament is connected to the word Christ. When they thought of the coming Messiah, the coming Christ. They thought in terms of one who would be a king, one who would be a priest. And, and Jesus is going to combine all those offices, as we've talked about. But yes, I, I take it that that's the case, uh, Craig, but it is not specifically said. It's not specifically said. Now, we have talked about the personnel who serve in the tabernacle. We have talked about the tabernacle structure, the, the, the building Itself and what made it up, and even the anointing oil and incense used in its worship. One of the things that's not been dealt with is who's going to make this? Who's going to build this? And here in chapter 31, verses 1 through 11, you read the two people's names who are going to be involved in building the tabernacle the main workers and they are Bezalel in verse 2 Bezalel who is from the tribe of Judah and Ohaliab in verse 6 who is from the tribe of Dan they're going to be the main builders and the Bible tells us, do you see in verse 3, the New American Standard says, I have filled him with all the Spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, in all kinds of craftsmanship. Um, some of your translations have the word wisdom. Some of your translations just have the word skill, don't they? Uh, at that place, or do they have the word skill skill? In verse three, but what what's interesting to me is the Hebrew word, the word Hebrew word for wisdom, is used in verse three, thirty one three, and twice in verse six. And it may be translated in your versions, skill. And wisdom is a very practical word. We see the same thing when we, when we talk about these two men, Bezalel and Ohaliah. They are dealt with in 35 verse 30 to 36 verse 7. As the text comes back and talks about them and once again, this particular word for wisdom or skill is used in 3535, 361, and 362. That often, often the Bible, wisdom is closely connected with some ability, some skill, some uh, craftsmanship even. Wisdom is a very practical word. Do you remember Psalm 107 where the writer discovered it's a thanksgiving psalm and it says, then we uh, gave thanks to the Lord for His loving kindness, for His wonders are forever. But the people find themselves in one dilemma after another and God delivers them from that. And one of the dilemmas was they were in the midst of a horrible storm and it says in Psalm 107 verse 27 that the sailors are reeling and staggering like drunken men and they were at wit's end. That word wits in Psalm 107-27 20, is our same word, skill or wisdom here. They were at wisdom's end. There was no nothing more they could do by their learning, by their skill and their ability and God saved them when they cried out to Him. But, but what, what I'm saying is, first of all, the word wisdom in the Bible is a very practical word. It's how to do, you know how to do things. Now, what does that tell you about the wisdom in Proverbs? Proverbs deals with how pe- people just know how to live, they know the right thing to do, the right way to behave in situations. Just like there's a skill. In building something or making something, there's a skill in living
1: as well
0: that Proverbs is demonstrating to us. Now, but in this particular case, the Bible says that I fill him with a spirit of wisdom and understanding. Who is the source of this wisdom or skill that these people have? Who? God. I know using an illustration like this runs a risk of getting you to think about other things. Okay? Follow the illustration and let me explain why I use it. I saw a survey a few years ago and it said they were asking people does God help Tim Tebow play football? This was in a uh, time that he was playing professional football. Does God help him? Now I was stunned in a conversation with preachers. That a lot of them said no. What is it That doesn't mean Tim Tebow is right. It doesn't mean he's wanting his team to win. What skill or ability do you have that God didn't give you? Anything you do well, you do well because of God. And to me, that question is just an obvious question. To, to anybody with a biblical worldview. And, and you look at these verses and just read how many times God says, I have given these people this kind of spirit, this kind of wisdom, this kind of understanding. I have filled them with this. In verse 3, I filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom. Now, I want to make a point of that. I filled him with the Spirit of of God. That phrase, it's used here in 31.3. It is used in 35 verse 31. The Spirit of God. That phrase is only used three other times in the whole first five books. And that is In Genesis 1 2, the Spirit of God was moving upon the waters. In Genesis 41, verse 38, as Pharaoh says of Joseph, can we find anyone like him in whom is the Spirit of the gods? And then in Numbers 24 and verse 2, as the Bible is talking about Balaam and the Spirit of God spoke through him. That's the only other three times that's used in Genesis through Deuteronomy. Now, what does that tell me? It's used twice right here of these people. Maybe the connection is between Genesis 1-2. In Genesis 1-2, the Spirit of God is active in creation, and this is almost a new creation. As God is making Israel into a new nation and making a place for them to, to worship. And we'll see more evidence maybe of that in just a moment. But whatever skill, whatever ability they have is from God. God is giving them this spirit, this giving them this wisdom and skill, maybe recreating the nation. Now, also, in verse Six. The second man that's mentioned in this group, Ohaliah, is from the tribe of Dan. Now, let me encourage you to look up these passages. In 1 Kings 7, verses 13 and 14. In 2 Chronicles 2, verses 13 and 14. Now, what you find in those verses, in those verses you find... That when the temple by Solomon is being built. The temple is built in the time of Solomon. Hiram sends David. A man who is partially a citizen of Tyre. Uh, but his mother was from the tribe of Dan. To build the temple. Now I won't tell you. That's not by accident. The Bible is telling us that it's making another connection between the tabernacle and the temple. That these these are the same idea is being stressed that God is dwelling among man, that God is dwelling among His people. By the way, go back up into verse two, verse two of I, of, of Exodus thirty one. It said, see, I have called by name Belzalel the son of Uri. Can you remember a time when God says like that, you know, I've called someone by name? That's used in Isaiah 45 verse 4 of God calling Cyrus by name. Cyrus in that account wasn't even recognizing the position he was serving. But just as God called Cyrus, God calls these men to build the tabernacle. Okay, so these are the men involved in the work of building the tabernacle. How does this section, which we have seen started at Exodus 25 and goes through Exodus 31, telling us how to build the tabernacle and the instructions in building the tabernacle, how does this end? It ends with instructions about the Sabbath. It ends with instructions about the Sabbath. Now, I want you to notice verse 12, 31 12, The Lord spoke to Moses. Simple phrase, isn't it? The Lord spoke to Moses. That phrase in this section in twenty-five and thirty-one gives the instruction about building the tabernacle. That phrase has been used in this section seven times. It was used in twenty-five one. It was used in thirty verse eleven. It was used in 30 verse 17, 30 verse 22, 30 verse 34, 31 verse 1, and now the seventh time here in 31 verse 12. Isn't it interesting the Lord spoke to Moses seven times and the seventh of these times talks about keeping the Sabbath day. I mean, again, I don't think words are here by accident or placed in. Here by accent, but, but let's look at what the text says, verse 12. But as for you, speak to the sons of Israel, saying, You shall surely observe my Sabbath, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Therefore you are to observe the Sabbath, for he is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. For whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. For six days work must be done, but on the seventh day there is a Sabbath of complete rest, holy to you. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall surely be put to death. So the sons of Israel shall observe the Sabbath to celebrate the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the sons of Israel forever, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, but on the seventh day he ceased from his labor and was refreshed. When he finished speaking with him upon Mount Sinai, he gave Moses the two tablets of testimony, tablets of, of, of stone written by the finger of God. Okay. The Sabbath is to be a sign of the covenant. A sign of the covenant between God and Israel. You see that in verse 13 and in verse 17 in particular. Sign of the covenant. Now, connecting with the Sabbath day, as we have pointed out, are things like the Sabbath day. Of year. And the Jubilee year. All of these are talked about in Leviticus 25. To keep any of them required great faith. But God says keep the Sabbath day. It is a sign between me and you. And the Bible tells us that it is to be a day that is holy in verse 14 and 15. As we stated everything around here is crying out holy. And as they keep this holy day, it is a reminder of the fact that the Lord sanctifies them. For He makes them holy as verse 13 says. He sanctifies it. He makes them holy. It is a holy day. They serve a holy God. It is a holy day. And He has made them holy. And the penalty for violation is stated in verses 14 and 15. The penalty for violation is death. But also verse verse 14 uses a term parallel to death. In verse 14 again, you are to observe the Sabbath for it's holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death for whoever does any work that person shall be cut off from among the people. So death and being cut off are used interchangeably. What does it mean in 30 verse 33? That if you make this anointing oil, you're cut off. Or 30 38, you make this incense, you're cut off. Sounds like it means death right here in this particular context. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, or to treat it. Is holy. God is holy. And all that is associated with Him and His service is holy. And there were serious, serious consequences of failing to recognize that holiness. But I want you to think with me here. We've we've tried to make a couple connections tonight. The Spirit of God in Exodus 31:3. The Spirit of God in Genesis 1-2. We've talked about the Lord spoke to Moses, his found seven times. And the seventh being this day of the Sabbath. Notice that 31-17 directly invokes creation. As once again, the fact that we remember the Sabbath is tied to creation. It's a sign between me and you and the sons of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, but on the seventh day he ceased from his labor and was refreshed. Why all these echoes of. the the original week why these echoes of the spirit of God and why this picture of creation because because in a sense with the nation of Israel God is beginning again God is trying to reach people through his new people his new creation his goal is not that they are blessed and everyone else is cursed, but that through them, all nations of the earth will be blessed. All nations of the earth will receive good things. But God is going to begin working through them in a new way. But it's almost as if God created the world in Genesis 1, as the world has gone astray. So God begins within that world to work through a new creation to once again bring man back to him. And that kind of phraseology is used in the New Testament, you know. You know we are a new creation, new creature, created uh, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. And, and many <coughs> other passages use this kind of language. What questions do you have? Anything? Yes? i got a three inches right toss back in your direction. Okay. Uh, have you connected Acts 5 with Ananias and Sapphira as a parallel to this, where they sold the property, found it back to themselves, and were struck with death? That was a new beginning of a new covenant early yeah. on in the church. And yeah. it mimics the strange fire when they brought it in. Uh, Absolutely. And it's, it's amazing that he's, you know, like you were saying, he thinks different than we do. Yeah. But our same thinking repeats itself and produces death. He doesn't change either covenant. Yes, and and, and two, always the closer we draw to His presence, the greater the demand for holiness. And I think as you have seen in Acts chapters 1 through 4, everything's going well, the gospel's spreading, and more and more people are baptized. And then all of a sudden you have this that seems to surprise us that you have hypocrisy among these people and one of them struck dead. The, the account of Ananias and Sapphira has definite echoes of the Old Testament account of, Anani- of, of uh, Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 10 that you mentioned and also of Achan in Joshua 7. There's some, there's some vocabulary connections in those cases and connections with how they're set up in the text. But all of them are at strategic beginnings in the history of God's people as a reminder to take Him seriously. To take Him and His holiness with the utmost seriousness. And I think that's part of the point here. And yet, this is the amazing thing about God. Lord willing, Sunday morning we want to get into Exodus 32 as a golden calf. This God who is so holy... And the consequences of, of transgressing His will are so profound. He is also a God of forgiveness. He is our only hope for mercy. And so Exodus 32, Lord willing, on Sunday, we'll talk about Exodus 32-34, then maybe have a lesson or two to sum up um, the tabernacle in Exodus 35-40. through 40. Thank you for your attention and uh, your patience.